The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you pray with me? most glorious Heavenly Father. Would you never let us forget the one we kneel before? There is a pull in our flesh and a weakness in our spirit that is always threatening our thoughts at this moment right here. because you are so mighty and and powerful and holy and just and righteous and pure. Our flesh pulls back. We can't stand the light. And yet, Father, your spirit within us is drawing us closer. It's assuring us that while you're not safe, you are good. While you're not to be trifled with, in the name of Christ, you receive us with joy. So, Father, I'm praying that you help us to find that proper sense of reverence and awe mixed with confidence and assurance. Father, we seek to find that in your word this morning as you speak to us through it. So we pray that by that same spirit, you would open our eyes and our ears, enlighten our hearts, allow us to see you as you are, see ourselves as we are, and to see Christ Jesus as the only thing that makes any kind of approach towards you possible. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue reading the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 15 through 23. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father, would you have your way with us now? 
Help us to mortify the flesh. To seek out and put to death sin and to see you as you are. Father, it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You'll recall from our time together last week that the Apostle Paul, having finished what I believe to be perhaps the most magnificent statement in all of Scripture, just just a truckload, just a metric ton of theological goodness upon these saints in Ephesus, that he immediately wants to let them know that he's praying for them. He's got great concern that they don't just become a bunch of big-headed theologians, They don't become just a bunch of flapping lips that can recite all types of truth about God. He's got great concern that this knowledge does not remain in their head, but makes it all the way to their heart and transforms them, that it drives their worship. And you'll recall that this is long before he gets to any kind of imperative, long before he gets to any kind of commandment that these people must walk out in faith as believers in Christ Jesus. He's very anxious to let them know who they are and how he prays for them. There's perhaps no greater honor, no greater privilege in all the Christian life than this, to go to the God of the universe to lift up petitions on behalf of the saints, to come into the presence of the Most High God and to offer up requests on behalf of your brothers and sisters, those whom you are so very thankful for, those who are so very needy, Those who you know must endure to the end if they will truly be saved. It's the most profound of Christian activities. Therefore, I don't think it should be any surprise to us that this can oftentimes be the most difficult of Christian activities. Dear children, prayer is war. It's spiritual warfare. It's war against the flesh. It's war against spirits of darkness. It's war against everything that clamors and argues and tries to grab after your attention and drag you away from that which is best. Prayer is war. And the more time I spend thinking about this thing we call prayer, the more time and effort I I give to just trying to be in the presence of God, the more I understand the theological realities of of what prayer is, the more I study the prayer lives of great Christian men and women who have come before me all throughout the ages, the more I realize that I've spent much of my life saying my prayers and very little time actually praying. Even when my time was very consistent, even when I would set aside a time at four in the morning because don't you know that prayers that are offered up before dark are the only before sunup excuse me are the only ones that count even when I had a very steady consistent prayer time and even when the petitions they just rolled off my lips with ease and even in those times when I was very confident that I belonged to Christ even those times when I went back in my prayer closet never having a doubt that he is mine and I am his, and therefore he's going to receive these requests that I give to him today. I look back and find in so many of those moments, I hadn't even begun to pray. Now now please hear me very clearly. I don't want to overcomplicate the matter. And I don't want to tell you that those, those moments when 
you're in a time of need or anxiety or fear or doubt, and you have time for just that, that, that singular prayer, God help me. Or you don't even have time to form any words. It's, it's just the, the groaning. Those times when you know the Spirit must be interceding because I don't even know what I need in this moment, but my heart cries out, God, please hear me now. Don't overcomplicate things. Those, God hears those prayers. God delights in those prayers. But there must be those times when we come to God with intentionality. The whole of our head, the whole of our heart, the whole of who we are coming into the presence of God. Desperate to meet with him. Desperate and weak and pitiful and lowly. Yet at the same time, supremely confident that he will receive us. That kind of prayers that leaves you equal parts exhausted and inspired. When you raise up off of your knees out of your prayer closet and you know, I have just met with God. More than this, I've just wrestled with God. So beaten down and bruised, perhaps limping all the days of your life because you have been in the presence of God. And yet at the same time, unshakably certain that there is nothing in all the earth that's going to separate you from his love. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor life, nor death. And I realize when I think about these things, even as these words leave my lips, I realize how seldom I've known this, ki- this type of life-giving prayer. Now, I've known the exhaustion of preaching. Any of you that have ever handled the Word of God, any of you that have ever come to the Word of God and wrestled and then sought to impart that wisdom to others, sought, sought to be used of God to speak the truth of God to the people of God, you know that there is no exhaustion quite like this. I didn't believe it until I did it. I know the exhaustion of preaching a message, having sought in the power of the Spirit to handle the Word of God and deliver it to you. And, beloved, there is no exhaustion quite like this. It's mentally and emotionally and even physically exhausting. There's never been a Sunday afternoon that I didn't finish our time here, particularly Sunday evening, having preached that second message, but I didn't just need to crash. What concerns me is I can never say with complete sincerity that I've ever left a time of prayer and needed a nap. Have I ever so wrestled with God that when my time was through, I could say nothing but I am wrung out, I am done, I am exhausted. Is that any less a spiritual activity? Is that work any less important? I say to you, no. Again, I tell you, prayer is war, and war will leave you exhausted. War will bring you to the end of yourself. And so, I wonder, how many times have I brought my petitions before God? Over and over and over again, I'm, I'm quite good at this. I make lists of things that I need to pray about, and, and I remember these things. God constantly bringing you to my remembrance as I go into my time of prayer. And I told you last week that I thank God for you. I thank God for you often. And the, the way that I do this is I picture your faces as you are right now. 
I go up one row and down the other and up the other. I pray for you by name, and many of you, I know exactly where you are, and I know your struggles, and I know your burdens. Many of you, I know your sins. And so I'm, I'm quite good at bringing my petitions before God, but do I ever wrestle them all the way through? Do I ever go to God on your behalf and say, God, I'm not letting go? I'm not moving until you hear me. I'm talking about days and months and weeks and years of persistent and enduring prayer. God, you promised. Therefore, I'm not letting go until you do this thing. The reality is that it doesn't just require a mental fortitude. It doesn't just require a spiritual toughness. But there's a physical aspect to this as well. I believe perhaps the reason why so many men never learn to pray, the reason why I have been so weak at times in my prayer life is a physical issue. Church historians tell us that the Lord's brother James was called old camel knees. Not the most flattering of nicknames. Called him old camel knees. Because he had spent so much time wrestling with God in prayer, he had built up calluses on his knees. Any of you that ever spent any significant amount of time kneeling in prayer, I'm not telling you that you have to only be kneeling in prayer. That is my posture of prayer. You know how hard it is just to sit still and, and assume that posture for a long time particularly as we get older. And so you start shuffling, and you start moving, and you start sliding, you start adjusting your weight the whole time as you're before God in prayer. Before long, you do it right, you're going to build up calluses on your knees. But how seldom have I done this? How often have I come to God in prayer and I've offered up my petition and said, good, I can check that one off my, off my box, off my list, done. You see, it's, it's unfaithful, Right? I've offered it once to God. Isn't that enough? Why would I continually come to him? Why would I wrestle with him? Don't I trust him? He said to ask, and I've asked. Now, surely that's enough. Completely ignoring all the times in Scripture when it says, no, you must be like a persistent widow. You must be like this, this neighbor that comes and knocks and knocks and knocks and knocks and says, I need this thing. I don't see that in my prayer life. I would imagine by the looks on your faces that many of you don't see that in your prayer life. So last week I encouraged you to go and study the great prayers of the Bible. And then this week as I came to the text and I wrestled with it and I considered what word God would have to you from it, I thought that we were going to move on to these petitions that Paul offers up, these, these requests that he makes before God. That's why I selected the text that I had David read earlier because that was the direction that I thought God was taking us in our message. But then something struck me as I thought about this. It's the reality that we can go and we can study all the great prayers of Scripture and we can learn to mimic them like a five-year-old boy learning to play the blues. that we can learn to recite the Lord's Prayer with perfect pitch and tone, that we can, we can learn to sound an awful lot like Paul when we go to God in prayer, 
and completely miss the spirit of it all. There's a book that I bought. I've recited a few prayers from it. It's called, it's called Valley of Visions. And it's, it's a book of, of Puritan prayers. And they're, they're, they're beautiful prayers. I'd encourage you maybe to go spend the, already what that book cost, six bucks or ten bucks or something. It wasn't crazy expensive, was it? Anytime you get your hands on the prayers of saints, good faithful men of old, I would encourage you to do that. But it would be so easy for me to come and just recite these types of beautiful prayers, and it's no different than a poetry reading. And completely miss the heart of it all. And so this morning, I think what God would have us do in our time, before we consider the content of the Apostle Paul's prayer, he would have us consider the heart, the spirit behind it all. As you'll recall, we spent our time together on the last Lord's Day taking note of the fact that Paul begins this with a word of thanks. For this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you, giving thanks for these believers because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. These men bore the marks of true believers, faith in Christ Jesus driving love for fellow Christians. That's the marks of a true believer. And so, firstly, the Apostle Paul, he thanks God for this because he knows that both faith and love are gifts from God. No man ever goes to God and thanks him for himself. Nobody thanks himself for his own faith, thanks himself for his own love because he knows these are, things, these are things that must be wrought by the Spirit of God or they will never come at all. Things that mimic faith, perhaps. Worldly love, of course but true, biblical, enduring faith, selfless love for the saints. God must do this work or it'll never happen. But in addition to this, we talked about how the faith of these saints, to hear that they had continued to endure after Paul had left them, that their faith and their love for one another, it was such an incredible encouragement for Paul because so many had walked away from the faith. Paul knew the loss of fellowship and not all of these had walked away from the faith. There were some men in that in that section we read in 2 Timothy, there were some of those men that had wandered away and left Paul alone for good reason. God had called them away to other ministries. God had called them away to other purposes. But there were some who had fallen away because they loved the world more than they loved Christ. So Paul was filled with a sense of, of love and, and thanksgiving and gratitude to God for them. So we recognize that we must always begin our prayers with a sense of thanksgiving to God. I must tell you, this is one area where I struggle greatly. I'm a man of ingratitude. I'm aware of this, and I, and I fight hard. But I'm not a man that feels as thankful as I have, or thankful as I should for what I have. I'm not a man who is quick to offer up words of gratitude. Instead, oftentimes I go to God, and I grumble for what I don't yet have. I grumble for what I've not yet received. I'm not even talking about physical things. Those are easy to figure out. I don't grumble to God, God, why haven't you given me a better truck? God, why am I not taller? God, why is there not more money in my bank account? Those things are easy to spot. It's the spiritual things. It's the religious things. It's the, it's the Christian things that I'll go to God. Instead of being so incredibly grateful for you, his saints, those who endure in faith and love for one another, I'll find myself lamenting over perhaps what was lost or what has not yet come. We must be a people who our prayers are all, always begin with a sense of thanksgiving to God. The reality is if we counted our blessings one by one in the presence of God, we would probably never get to anything else. 
If you honestly took time to assess all the ways that the God of the universe has blessed you, all that you have to be thankful for, hours upon hours would pass and you'd never get to the first request. That's why the Apostle Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See how closely tied together are rejoicing and always giving thanks and being in constant prayer how often are our prayers hindered from a, a grumbling heart, a spirit of ingratitude? What did Paul say in the letter to the Romans, that first chapter? He said that this is the root of sin. It's a refusal to give thanks to God, receiving all of his good gifts. Beloved, look around you and think about all that God has given you. a refusal to thank God for all that he has given us that this is sin and sin hinders our prayers so we must always come to him with this sense of thanksgiving he says I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ might beloved we're not getting any further than this today we must remember the one to whom we pray. This is the fundamental thing in prayer. More than your words, more than your posture, more than the time of the day that you go to him, we must always clear out our minds first and remember to whom we pray. We must begin with God. How much of my prayer life has been hindered? Not because I didn't want to come to God in prayer, because once I found myself there in his presence, as I, bowed my, as, I, as I bent my knees and I bowed my head and I closed my eyes, and then I found myself consumed with the prayer itself. I found myself consumed with the particular requests that I was making to God. I found myself consumed with thoughts of the people that I was praying for. I found myself consumed with this compulsion to get up and go and do something about the thing that is troubling my heart in that moment. And I completely, before I knew what had happened, I completely missed the whole purpose why I was there. What am I even doing? My mind is scattered. It's going a million different places. I can't pin down any one thought at any moment. I, I can't wrestle a thing through, as I said earlier, because I'm just so scattered. What am I doing here? It's my mind, it runs it runs aimlessly. So we must remember that the God before whom we pray, he is not only the audience, but he is the aim. He's not just the one we're coming to make a request of. He's the thing we're requesting. That we don't come to God to ask him for things. We don't come to God to ask him for provision. We come to God because we want God. That's the purpose in prayer. I've, I've talked before, I've, I've talked often about the candy bowl and the, the candy bowl that I keep in my office or the candy bowl that I, that I bring in here and, and, I, and I recognize, right, for some people they think it's, it's weird, it's weird, you're a grown man and you're always talking about a candy bowl and how you desire to give candy to kids and I get it in some circumstances, that's maybe a weird thing, okay? If a guy's riding around in a van or trying to spend time alone with your kids and give them candy, that's probably weird.
But I've talked about how there's a, there's, there's a purpose, there's an intentionality behind this. And it's not the candy. It's that there's going to come a day when some of your children are going to have to hear me say some really, really hard things. Some things that may not immediately sit right with their little hearts. There may come a day when I'm the one that's got to show up at your house to help them know something really scary has happened. And I need them to believe me that God is good. I need them to know that I'm a man who loves them and cares for them. So the candy bowl is about a whole lot more than candy. The candy bowl is about communion. It's about an opportunity for me to interact with these children. Do you understand? That that's the point. That God could meet our needs in any way, even outside of prayer. He does this for the pagan, doesn't he? They never ask him or thank him for a thing, and yet he meets every last need. They enjoy rain, they enjoy food, they enjoy health. Some of them enjoy fantastic, fantastic amounts of money and wealth. They enjoy all these things, having never once come to God in prayer. They get many of the same things that we come to God in asking in prayer, but they never get God. They never get the thing that they really need, and that that's the design of prayer. We must always begin there. Because if we make it about the thing that we're asking for, or even if we make it about the people that we're asking on behalf of, then we'll have this urgency to leave his presence to go and take hold of that thing. But if you recognize that my purpose in prayer is to have God, and you realize that there alone in your closet you have God, it's not going to be an urgency to get up and leave. It's going to be begging God, how long will you let me stay? Because out there is distracting, and out there is discouraging, and out there there's other things that are clamoring for my attention, and I want you, and here I have you. Why do we teach our children to bow their heads and close their eyes when they pray? What's the purpose behind this? Can you not pray with your eyes open? Surely you can. Can you not pray on a, on a crowded bus or in the middle of a stadium, a sports stadium, while a game is going on? Of course, you can pray in all of those places. But there's something about the stillness and the quiet and the darkness of that place where all those things are shut out and it's just me and him. And he's the thing we need. So we begin with him. We begin recognizing he's not just the audience, he's the aim. He's not just the gift giver, he's the goal. You notice how, how, often in, um, how often in the Gospels Jesus would pull away. How often in the Gospels Jesus would, would pull away from the crowds. He would pull away even from the 12, and it would say that he would go and be alone in prayer. And Jesus needed prayer. He needed prayer for the ministry that lay ahead. He needed prayer for the suffering that awaited him. But I can't help but believe that much of this was driven by the fact that he just loved being alone with the Father. Think about that scene right there in Mark's gospel. The first, right out the gate, Mark's moving so fast, right? Immediately, by verse 12, he's already there, and he's, 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 doing, he's doing these works, and he's, he's moving, and he's, all this activity. And you, you remember that towards the end of that first chapter that he's, 
He's come out of the synagogue having, having cast a demon out of the man, and he's gone, and he's, he's healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then everybody's coming. And I don't know how many people, but I'm picturing just, just thousands. Can you imagine if there's a man that has healing? It, it, is, it, is, it is touch, and with just a word, he, he can heal you completely. And so he's there, and you can imagine that just the throngs of crowds that are, that are coming to him. And, and the Scripture tells us what Jesus experienced when he healed. You remember that there's a time when a, when a woman reached out and touched him, and the Scripture says that he, he felt power leave him. And I told you, I know the exhaustion of, of preaching. And I don't tell you this to make you feel sorry for me. I, I plead with God, he'll let me do it until my dying day. I want to die preaching, by the way. I hope you're not the ones that are here when I fall over. But I would give anything if God would let me drop dead in the pulpit. Or maybe let me finish my sermon and drop dead right over there in front of Carter. I know that exhaustion. Can you imagine the exhaustion of this power that is leaving you? you? You heal hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And Scripture says that he rose very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate, desolate place, and there he prayed. He wanted to be alone with God. More than he wanted rest. Jesus was a man, and he needed rest. And again, this doesn't mean you've got to get up. I tried that. I tried that for much of my life. I thought that only, only prayers that happened before the sun came up counted because Jesus was always up early. And it just hasn't worked for me. I'm going to be honest with you. It just never worked. It just made me a grumpy person. I may have been right with God, but I was wrong with everybody else the rest of the day. That may be what God has for you. That may be a part of mortifying the flesh and, 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 and putting to death some sin within you and, and, and strengthening yourself. That may be a thing that God would have you to do, or maybe not. Maybe your prayers are at a different time of day. But when we remember the one to whom we pray and remember the goal behind our prayers, all of a sudden there will be this urgency that even trumps sleep. So he begins there. He wants to make clear the one to whom he prays. And how does he identify him? He says, verse 17, the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, we've heard language like that, didn't we? All the way up in verse 3 when, we says, when he says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, we're very comfortable with calling God the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. He has eternally been the Father to the one who has eternally been the Son. And we're going to talk about this, God willing, on the next Lord's Day as we begin our Advent series together. I believe where God would have us begin is the Word who in the beginning was with God and was God. And we're very comfortable with this, the idea that He is the Son, eternally has been the Son to the Father. But in what way is God the God of Jesus? This this a lapse in judgment from Paul to speak like this? Well, certainly not, because Jesus himself spoke like this. We remember that cry of dereliction there upon, the, there upon the cross as he felt truly abandoned in that moment, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that this wasn't just during his great time of humiliation and suffering as he hung there upon the cross drinking down the cup of the Father's wrath. It wasn't just there in those moments, but remember, even after the resurrection, you remember that he says to Mary Magdalene, he says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So while he has always and infinitely and eternally been 
the Son of God, everything that we say about God. He's never lost his deity. He is fully and completely God. We must also heed the words of Scripture like Philippians 2.7 that says he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? His divinity? No, that cannot be. God is unchanging. He is infinitely and eternally God. He did not lose one ounce of his divinity or his power or his wisdom or his might or his righteousness or his holiness or his glory. That the way this one emptied himself was by taking upon himself flesh, becoming fully a man, never ceasing to be God and yet living fully as a man, being everything that that first man, Adam, was meant to be. John Owen said, refusing to cheat, he would live as a man in absolute dependence upon the Spirit of God, doing only that which the Father told him to do. Do you understand? That if he was going to be our righteous representative, if he was going to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, if he was going to be our champion, if he was going to be a real substitute, if he was going to resist all temptation just as a man, then he must do it in the power of the Holy Spirit in submission to the Father. And we lose this sometimes, I think. Because we live in a world that is very quick to embrace the humanity of Christ, but not so quick to embrace the fact that he is fully God. So we spent so much of our lives trying to argue with men, to prove to them from the scriptures that Jesus is, that Jesus claimed to be, that Jesus remains always God, that we forget his humanity. But if you look back in the history of the early church, that was the question at hand. And we don't understand how this can be. Again, we're going to spend four weeks talking about the incarnation. What does it mean for him to be one person with two natures, fully God and fully man? Not some divine humanity, not some watered-down divinity, fully God at the same time, fully man. But I'm afraid that we paid so much attention to his divinity, we've forgotten that he was one who grew he was one who hungered. He was one who thirsted. He was one who got tired. He was one who slept. And because of this, we lose our ability to look at him as our true representative, as the pattern for holiness, as a pattern for what it looks like to submit to the will of the Father, as a pattern for what it looks like to do this life under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it was very right for Paul to say that God is his God. But there's something more for us beyond this. Just the way in which the God-man, Jesus Christ, related to God. It's the way that we, therefore, relate to God. All throughout the Old Testament, anytime we would, we would come to a time when the people of God were crying out to God, how often would you hear them recite the God of our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? They were reminding themselves that the reason we can come before you the reason we can plead your promises, the reason that we can come to you and trust that you will not turn us away is because you have entered into covenant with our fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And because of your relationship with them, we are now your children. You are our God and we are your people. And what Paul is making very clear to us here is that new covenant in the blood of Christ Jesus, you've got a place there too. It's not about bloodlines. It's not about nationality. It's not about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, although it's that same God. It's that same covenant of grace that's being worked out all throughout redemptive history. You are now brought by the blood of Christ into this new covenant. He is your God. You can cling to the promises not because of yourself, 
but because of Christ, because of all that he has done. Galatians 3, 7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He says, we and you also. Do you remember this? From the end of that long sentence, he's saying, we who are the first to hope in Christ and you also, when you heard the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, you too. He's saying you too have a place here. It's not just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's not just the God of the Jews. It's not just the God of Israel. It's your God too in Christ Jesus. Paul knows that he has no place. You see, if you were to just come storming into the throne room of an ordinary king, an earthly king, off with your head. You have no right to come into this place. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that the only way he has a right to come before God to offer up these kinds of, of petitions is because he is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are his, and he is ours. And apart from this, he owes us no audience whatsoever. That's why we pray in the name of Christ. So we come to God pleading Jesus' name, saying, would you have mercy, us, mercy on us for his sake, relying on his unceasing meditation on our behalf, constantly bringing before the Father his redemptive work, the adoption that is ours in Christ Jesus. So this changes then the way that we pray because we're able to come to him knowing that we are covenant children of promise, that we are those who could come in the spirit, that we are those who come in the name of Christ Jesus, and therefore we can take these promises from his word and bring them before God. That becomes what prayer is all about, seeking out the promises of Scripture and then bringing them before God. I want you to think about the prophet Daniel. He's there in exile. I'm just going to read you a prayer first, and then I guess I'll have you think about Daniel. Daniel 9. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. With fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Skipping down to verse 18. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay, not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people who are called by your name. Now, Daniel offers up this prayer, and then God sends the people. God responds, and he sends the people back home out of exile. And people would have been so tempted to come and say, what a faithful man are you, Daniel? What kind of man offers up such a beautiful prayer as this? God heard, and he answered. You prayed to God on behalf of his covenant love for his people. You pleaded to God because of the desolation of Jerusalem. You asked, and God responded. You asked, and God returned his people from exile. You asked, and God healed his land. Do you know what Daniel would have said to you at that moment? I just went and read what Jeremiah wrote. God promised after 70 years he would bring us home. I just found a promise of God, and I pled it. I just found a promise of God, and I believed it enough to recite it back to God. Do you understand what this means? When Jesus says that you ask anything according to my will, he hears and you have this thing. 
If we're not careful, we turn this into this, okay, look, I'm tired of all my prayers being responded to with a no. I want to win at prayer. I want to be a person who has God answering his prayers, and I can't have the stuff that I want, so I'm just going to go and find the things that he offers. I'm just going to go find all the prayers that I know he's going to say yes to, and I'm going to offer those, and at least then I'll have a good relationship with God because he'll finally be giving me the things that I ask for. But, beloved, don't you understand that if he is yours and you are his, the promises he has here are the best? I feel like that's really become the whole of my ministry, trying to convince you that what God has for you is better than anything that our foolish hearts could dream up. It's not about searching for the stuff that God will settle for. It's searching for what he says is best. All things for your good and my glory. This is a, it's a treasure map. Do you understand? He's saying, I've got for you the best. I only promise for you the best. I only plan for you the best. And so as my covenant children, as those who I welcome into my kingdom, I'm saying search the scripture, find the best, and then ask me for it. That that's what prayer is all about. People ask all the time, does prayer change God's mind? And I'm always confounded by that question. Not just because the obvious answer is no, but who on earth would want to change God's mind? What are you going to show him that he doesn't know? What foolishness or evil or wickedness was in his heart when he devised his plans? At what point does his resources run out and he realizes we got to go to plan B? His ways are best, so we find his ways and then we beg him. We hold fast to him. We wrestle him all the way through to the end. You must never forget this. When we come before, he's the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are his, and he is ours. But he doesn't stop there. As he prays to the, Lord of our, to the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, What a beautiful phrase. We can, we can read so quickly through the scriptures and, and we get familiar with certain words and phrases and they flow off of our lips. And I, I could have preached 10 sermons on what does it mean to call him our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we, but we move so quickly through these because we think the meat is down somewhere else. No, the meat's right here. He's the father of glory. What does this mean? This saying just that he produces or he generates a thing called glory? Certainly not. I found a weird parallel. And I, don't, I, I pray that you see it too, and I pray that I've not missed the mark here, but Jesus is speaking about the devil. John 8, 44. Speaking of him, he says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan lies because the truth is not in him. He is a liar. He is a father of lies because it is in his character. Do you understand? Satan's not a liar because he lies. He lies because he's a liar. Do you understand the difference? 
there's some translations and some commentators that say that what this can be said is instead of the Father of glory, it can just be said that he is the glorious Father. But I think that falls short to use it as an adjective like this. Because there are many things that can be called glorious. That we ourselves are being brought in to glory. He's bringing many sons to glory. We are moved from glory to glory to glory. But only he is the glorious one by his very nature. You see, God is not glorious because he does glorious things. It is out of his nature that he acts. Everything that he does. It's not as if God were in heaven in eternity past and he looked forward and said, said, what would be glorious for me to do? What kind of things would a glorious God do? And those are the things that I shall do because I want to be a glorious God. I want to be a God that is worthy of worship. I want to be a God that is worthy of praise. I want to be the Father of glory. And so what would a glorious God do? These things I will do. This is not the case at all. Instead, we find that all the things that God has done reveal to us his nature. He's not glorious because he does glorious things. He does glorious things because he is glorious. Do you see the difference? That's why Jesus can say in John 17, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All that Christ came to do, all that the Father had planned, all that the Spirit now applies, at the end of every single one of these in this previous section, what do we see? To the praise of his glory. All he was doing was showing us who he was. He wasn't attaining to some level of glory. He wasn't outpunting his coverage. He was saying, let me just show you even just a bit of my glorious nature. Let me show you who I am. This is why this word glory can be so difficult for us to define at times. What is glory? Well, God is glorious. Well, yeah, but what is it? So we landed as, a, as, as best I can wrap my mind around it. We've, we've landed on glory is the weight of all that God is. It's the sum of all his perfections, the worth and the beauty and the, the majesty, the weight of God, that this is his glory. Therefore, anything in this world that is glorious, it originates from him as the father of glory. Anything that is true, anything that is pure, anything that is wise, anything that is powerful, anything that is just, anything that is majestic, anything that is beautiful, anything that is worthy, it all originates from and returns to him, the father of glory. what it means for him to be the father of glory. He is the source. He is the fountainhead. He is the beginning and the end and the purpose of all that is glorious. He's the father of glory. So I pray you see how the apostle Paul is pausing here just before he prays. This is a thing that I find myself doing before I am not the apostle Paul, and I've confessed to you how seldom I've truly prayed like this. But I do find myself just, just pausing for a moment before I can even utter my first words in prayer. It's like I've got to just steady my heart or, or let the world quiet down for a minute. Just remember, who is this one that I'm standing before? Before Paul makes his request, even as selfless a request as praying on behalf of these people, remembering that he's just going to pray the things that God's already promised. That's what he does there. Praying these gifts that God has already, already promised to them. But before that, it's like he just wants to set his heart right. It's like he believes the word, the word of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5. Be not rash with your mouth, 
nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. There's some people, I'm afraid, that seem to believe that to, to approach God either in worship or in prayer in a casual nature as if God were your buddy or your pal or your equal somehow indicates a sense of intimacy or maybe even spiritual maturity. Dear children, I tell you the opposite is true. Anyone who has truly known God, anyone who has ever actually spent any time in the presence of God, they only find themselves with a deeper and greater sense of unshakable reverence. Have you ever felt the weight of his majesty? It's overwhelming. People that truly know God, have truly spent time alone with God in prayer, they get into any kind of a worship service that is, that is flippant or, or that, is, that is light or is jokey. Or a prayer meeting when people are offering up their, their request to God as if he was their buddy or their pal or their equal. They want to just yell out, shut your mouth and bend your knee. Do you know who you're addressing? This is the father of glory. Guard your tongue. There's a passage, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to read it. I think I'm going to read this, this whole passage. And the point isn't even this, but I think I see it. And I want to show it to you. It's in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 18. And you know the whole point to, to, to the, this letter is, is you know, coming all the way to Christ and seeing how much greater Christ is than anything and, and saying don't, don't turn back to the old ways. Don't turn back to the temple and the sacrifice and, and the circumcision and the priests and any of that. All that was meant to lead you forward to the true and heavenly realities. It's meant to lead you forward to Christ who is greater. But, but as, I was, as I was thinking about Here's how I got here. I'm just going to tell you how I got here. I was, I was thinking about the people in Scripture that really had an intimate relationship with God. And I was thinking about men like Isaiah. And they had come into the, he'd, he'd come in, into the throne room and he's there in this vision. And he's just falling down as a man who is just completely undone. And I thought about a man like Job who learned so much about God through great suffering and, and trial. And he, he would catch himself speaking to God to God and, and, and never turning his back and never cursing God and never doubting God, but, but he would catch his lips running away at times and then he would he'd put his hand over his mouth and say, no, I, I, I'd heard about you, but now I see you and I feel your weight. And then it led me, then it led me to Moses. And I thought about the scene there at Mount Sinai as God has worked these miraculous works and and he sent these plagues and he's led his redeemed people out of slavery and out of bondage and into the wilderness and he brings them to the base of Mount Sinai and it's going to be the first worship service of this newly redeemed people of God. And and it's going to go sideways. It's going to go sideways. One One of the loudest Worship services, that's why we don't gauge our worship service based on the size of the crowd or the ruckusness and the loud and the, 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 the sound and, and the excitement. One of the loudest worship services in all of Scripture was around a golden calf. It sounded like war. 
but, but he led me, he led me to, this, to this picture and to this scene, and I'm thinking about Moses and all that he knows about God. There's a message here for us, I think. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Do you remember this? That God is there and his voice is booming out like thunder and there's a cloud and smoke coming down upon the mountain. And he says, wash yourself and let nobody come and and even touch the mountain, even a beast or they're going to die because my glorious and holy presence is here. And the people are trembling and they look to Moses and they say, Moses, we can't bear to hear his voice. You got to go talk to him. And really this is a picture setting up the whole of Old Testament worship. Somebody else has got to go talk to God for us or we're going to die. Somebody else has got to go into the presence of God or we're going to die. But then it goes on to say, verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I don't know when he said this in the Old Testament, but he, he's recording here. The inspired scripture is telling us here that he says this, I tremble with fear. And the author here is saying, but you've not come to a mountain like this. You've not come to a physical mountain like this. Quit looking back to the old days and pretending they're better. That's what it was like. But that's not what you've come to. Listen to what he says. But you have come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly realm, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's saying, you didn't come to those places. You didn't come to a place where the blood of Abel cries out to you as guilty, as guilty and condemned and worthy of death. You come to a place where the blood of Christ comes out and cries out, redeemed forgiven, washed clean. You're not coming to an earthly physical mountain. You are swept up into the heavenly places, even now. When you come to God in worship, when you come to God in prayer, you are standing in the throne room of heaven. Not with a booming voice from a cloud, but with the voice of angels crying out. With Christ Jesus, our Lord. With the saints who have gone before us. Now, we can have this temptation, though, don't you see? You say, okay, good. We're not at the base of Mount Sinai anymore. Therefore, we don't need to tremble. We're not at the base of Mount Sinai anymore. Therefore, we don't need to come with a sense of reverence and awe and respect, feeling the glory of God. Beloved, I remind you, this God has not changed. What's changed is that in Christ Jesus, you may approach. In Christ Jesus, you have been cleansed. That's why he finishes this, letter, or this, this chapter by saying, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's not stopped being a consuming fire. What it's saying is he will burn up everything that does not belong. All sin and all shaft and all wasted and earthly things, all that will be washed away. In the middle here he says he will come and he will shake everything that can be shaken so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. But we cannot let this promise that we may approach God, that the veil has been torn, that in Christ Jesus we have access to the throne of grace. We cannot allow this to ever confuse us into thinking that he's no longer the father of glory. If you would come with reverence and awe to that mountain, we must come with reverence and awe to this mountain. Do you understand? 
He's still the Father of glory. This is the privilege we have in coming to Him in worship and in prayer. We recognize He's not just the Father of glory. He's the Father of grace. That in Christ Jesus, you may come near. He bids you, come into my presence. You come with reverence and fear and awe. But you may come confidently because of my Son. And I don't know in which area you people struggle. I'm imagining you struggle in one or the other because no man has ever mastered his prayer life. But I've got to think that surely there are some of you that find yourselves coming flippantly and casually into the presence of God. It's, it's such a familiar thing to say my prayers. We do it before meals, and we do it with our children before bedtime, and we offer them up as we're driving down the road, and we're so familiar to coming into the presence of God in prayer. And we've never known a time when Christ Jesus wasn't Lord. We've never known a time when we didn't know that we had access to God through his son, Jesus Christ. We never stood at the mount of, base of Mount Sinai. We never knew what that separation felt like. And so we become so casual to come into the presence of God as if he was our buddy or our friend or he owed us an audience. So for those of you, I would encourage you to remove your feet. No, don't remove your feet. I mean, if that's what it takes, Scripture says. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place where you go is holy ground. But perhaps there's some of you that just keep them off at a distance. You're saying, preacher, you pray on our behalf. You wrestle the word on our behalf. You speak to God on our behalf because he's terrifying. Scripture uses that word. On, on Wednesday night, we were studying through Psalm 47, and we, we came to a word that can be translated as terrible. That's a lost word, that God is a terrible God. Not terrible as in lacking. Not terrible as in bad. Terrible as in striking terror. Perhaps some of you know this terrible God, and yet you've not trusted in the blood of Christ Jesus. You've not heard his, his blood crying out to you, that you're redeemed and you're forgiven and you are cleansed and he bids you to come. But whichever of these extremes you find yourself erring to, I plead with you now in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord to come confidently with reverence and with all. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you didn't leave us there at Mount Sinai. But that in Christ Jesus, we are swept up even now into the heavenly places. That there is a new and better covenant purchased with his blood. That because of this, Father, we can come boldly into your presence, knowing that you will hear us, that you will receive us, and you will give us only that which is for our good. So, Father, I'm asking you, to transform our prayer lives. When we don't know how to pray, we know that your spirit intercedes. But Father, we pray more than just his intercession. We pray his strengthening and his encouragement and his training. That Father, we would be a people who learns what it means to really pray. Seeking not just the things that you promise us in prayer, but yourself. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.